outsiders, investing, or even gambling in lawsuits. It's a multi-billion dollar global business that's transforming our legal system. It's done in secret without any rules of the road. There is no way to know who is financing the cost of a lawsuit or who is controlling it. There's also no way to know who will profit from the result of these lawsuits, except of course, the outside investors know, and they are jacking up the cost of litigation in cases around the world. Do we really want our courtrooms turned into casinos? I'm Paige Falk, and this is Cause for Action. Cause for Action is brought to you by the U.S. Chamber Institute for Legal Reform, the leading legal reform advocate in the U.S. and around the globe. Learn more at instituteforlegalreform.com. Okay, greetings, everyone. I'm Paige Falk. I am a senior vice president at the U.S. Chamber Institute for Legal Reform, and this is my very first podcast. So thank you, everyone, for listening. I'm certainly happy to be here, uh, and we appreciate all the listeners out there. Uh, I travel for work, and I also attend events around Washington where I'm often asked, what do I do at the U.S. Chamber Institute for Legal Reform? What are the important legal issues impacting business? When I tell them one of the key issues of concern right now is giant hedge funds investing secretly in lawsuits, I almost always get the same incredulous reaction. What? That can't be legal. Well, there's no one better to answer that question and explain how investing in lawsuits, or what is formerly called third-party litigation financing works, than the expert on the issue, John Beisner. John is a partner at the prestigious Skadden Arps firm, and he has received numerous legal awards and accolades. And for Game of Thrones fans listening out there, John is the first of his name, king of litigators, defender in class actions. He has defended U.S. and international companies in more than 600 purported class action lawsuits and also played an integral role in enactment of the landmark Class Action Fairness Act. He's an honors graduate of the University of Michigan Law School, and he received his undergraduate degree at University of Kansas. So, John, I know you've received a lot of accolades. Have you ever been compared to a fictional king before? No, that has not happened. <laughs> so, that's All right, always a well, first. And we'll have to get you a crown or the Iron Throne. So uh, you were here nearly a decade ago where you wrote a paper for the U.S. Chamber Institute for Legal Reform called Selling Lawsuits, Buying Trouble. You were really one of the first people to sound the alarm in that piece uh, on the dangers of third-party litigation financing. You, we were on a panel together at the time talking about what was then a, an emerging trend. Now, a lot has happened since then, and many of the predictions that you outlined then are now happening. So let's just kind of break it all down and start from the beginning and just tell me, how does third-party litigation financing work? What is it? Yeah, Paige, it's, it's, it seems a little mysterious, but I think the, the concept is actually pretty simple. And if a person has a claim, they've got a lawsuit to bring, he or she effectively sells part of the claim to a litigation funder for a cash payment. So a funder might pay, let's say, $500,000 to the claim holder for a 20% interest in the claim. And when the lawsuit goes to trial or is settled, the funder then gets 20% of whatever amount is recovered. If nothing is recovered, the funder gets nothing. But if the lawsuit pays out a ton of money, uh, the funder gets its share of that pile of money. Now, 
you know, the claimant can use the money the funder pays however he or she wants. Sometimes the claimant uses the money to finance the litigation of the claim or he or she can go buy a house, a boat, a car, whatever they want to do with it. The point is that the funder, though, invests in the lawsuit. The funder buys part of the claim. Now, there are some variations on this theme. Sometimes it's the lawyer who sells the interest. A lawyer may agree to litigate a plaintiff's case for a 40% contingency fee. The lawyer may then sell part of that interest to a funder to get money up front or the lawyer might use that money to pay himself or herself right away or to pay litigation expenses such as for hiring experts. But again, if the litigation fails, the funder gets nothing. But if the case pays off big time, the funder gets a giant payday. Interesting. So why should we really be worried about that, John? You know, I'm not saying that any of this funding stuff necessarily ought to be banned, but it's hard to deny that this litigation funding phenomenon is starting to cause some major changes in our U.S. legal system. Throughout history, our U.S. courts have been a place where a person who thinks he or she has been injured by another party could go to get redress. Citizen asked the court to decide who should be responsible for an injury. And the system's been all about a person going into court and asking that he or she be made whole again. And it's a system designed and intended to vindicate rights. Litigation funding really changes all of that. Suddenly what happens in courtrooms isn't so much about redressing an individual's injury or vindicating rights. It's all about profits and losses. A couple years ago, I recall a state appellate court judge describing it as um, litigation funding turning our courts into stock markets. No longer are courts tribunals resolving disputes between people. Their litigation funding is sort of forcing the courts to declare winners and losers in competitions for profits, ironically, among entities that in a lot of cases really aren't even parties to the lawsuit. The problem I see is that no one seems to be taking time to assess the full ramifications of this sort of radical change to our judicial system or to figure out the conditions we may want to impose on the use of litigation funding so we can ensure that whatever transformation may occur as a result of funding is positive. Yeah, but John, so why should the business community be concerned about litigation funding? We've obviously talked about that a lot here at the Institute for Legal Reform. I mean, aren't litigation funders entrepreneurs doing what they're doing supposed to do as part of the free enterprise system? Well, Paige, I'm you know I'm sorry. I look, litigation simply isn't an element of our free enterprise system. Under our litigation process, a plaintiff can haul a defendant into court and make it expend a huge amount of time and money defending itself, even though the claim may not have much merit. That's just how the system works. The only way the defendant can get free of that litigation trap is to pay the plaintiff money to settle the case. That's simply not free enterprise. The plaintiff is forcing the defendant to expend a lot of resources, even though it obviously doesn't want to be doing that. The defendant would much rather be out conducting its business and actually participating in the free enterprise system. Well, John, uh, on that point, I've heard you say that the increased use of litigation funding will actually result in the filing of more lawsuits, and particularly more lawsuits that really don't make any sense. Why? 
I don't think anybody really denies that litigation funding is increasing and will continue to increase the volume of litigation. The funding industry admits that one of its goals is to encouraging, encourage the filing of lawsuits that wouldn't otherwise be filed. When you pour a bunch of money into the system to facilitate filing lawsuits, you're going to get more lawsuits. It's not rocket science. Attorneys will use that new money to file more cases, and those additional lawsuits are probably going to be weaker claims than they would have otherwise filed. Because if those claims were all that strong in the first place, some lawyer presumably would have filed them already under our existing contingency fee system. So are you, you're suggesting then that a lot of these new litigation funding mechanisms, they spawn lawsuits that have marginal bases or maybe even downright frivolous? I, I don't understand why anyone would, would invest in a case like that. I think I can answer that in one word, and it's leverage. You know, an analogy you might want to use is going to the racetrack to bet on the horses. And a lot of people use a leverage betting approach. You, you bet on some horses with good odds, hoping they will come in and, and give you basic return on your investment. But then you also want to bet on some long shots, you know, huge odds, but fantastic returns if you win. And that's what the funders do. You know, they, they invest in portfolios. Well, it's those long shots that are the problem because these are cases that are closer to the line. They may be downright fr frivolous. Uh, they may be very marginal cases. But that's how they're, they're managing that. And that's where uh, the problem comes from with the frivolous or marginal lawsuits being produced by this process. Well, I, I get the concept, but I mean, do you have any real-world examples or evidence that litigation funding is really spawning frivolous cases? I think you only have to read the newspaper to find that evidence. You know, last year, the New York Times published a front-page expose on litigation funders financing unnecessary surgery so women could file stronger claims in the vaginal mesh litigation. I'm looking at it here. The article was entitled, How Profiteers Lure Women into Often Unneeded Surgery. And to quote the article, uh, hundreds of women have been sucked into this assembly line type system funded by banks, private equity firms, and hedge funds, which provide financial backing. The profits are immense. Uh, in another gambit reported by the New York Post last year, funders reportedly used their investments to encourage filing dubious claims against the New York City government and, of course, its taxpayers. In another ploy reported by Forbes in 2015, funders financed substantial advertising to buy control of mass tort claims, many of which have not, had not been fully investigated. And then there's the Chevron Ecuadorian environmental case that was sponsored with litigation funding. It was so frivolous that the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit declared the lawsuit itself to be a RICO scam. And presumably that's just the tip of the iceberg. I say that, Paige, because as you noted at the outset, all this funding stuff occurs in total secrecy. So when we see a frivolous or marginal lawsuit out there, we don't know if it was the product of litigation funding because all that's kept hidden. Uh, that's a good transition into another question that I have for you, John. 
Um, as you know, a lot of the discussion about litigation funding at the moment concerns the question whether it should be disclosed. The, the judges who draft the rules for our federal courts are actually considering a potential rule change to the federal rules of procedure that was proposed by the U.S. Chamber Institute for Legal Reform, uh, as, along with a group of 29 other very diverse organizations. And essentially, it would require disclosure of litigation funding agreements in all civil cases in federal court. There's also legislative activity on the Hill. Uh, the U.S. Senate is considering a bill that would mandate disclosure of litigation funding in federal court class actions and multi-district litigation, mass tort cases. And even states are now considering disclosure rules similar to what Wisconsin has already enacted last year. So I know you're in favor of disclosure. The U.S. Chamber Institute for Legal Reform is in favor of disclosure. Why is that so important? I think there are a couple of reasons disclosure of third-party litigation funding agreements uh, should be required in all civil cases. First and foremost, if you're a defendant, you've got a right to know who is really prosecuting a lawsuit against you. When a funder buys an interest in a lawsuit against the defendant, the funder essentially becomes a real party in interest, adverse to the defendant. The defendant has a right to know its prosecutors especially when that funder may exercise control or substantially influence litigation strategy issues and settlement. But there's another related reason. Uh, Richard Levick, who I understand is an advocate uh, for the PR industry, a person in the public relations business, recently published an article in which he stated that, and I'm quoting it here now, it's not much of a stretch to see litigation finance, like the plaintiff's bar itself, filling something of a regulatory function of forcing businesses to greater accountability where the government has so far failed or declined to do so. So here we have litigation funders wishing to play the role of being private enforcers, of making decisions about which companies should be the targets of enforcement activity. But they want to do all of that in complete secrecy. Now, the question whether this public enforcement notion is appropriate in the first place, I think, is subject to a lot of legitimate debate. But how can anyone argue that some sort of secret society ought to be making decisions about what sort of enforcement action should be brought and against whom? Why should that matter? Well, you know, enforcement of our laws loses legitimacy if it's not transparent. There's just too many risks of abuse. One example that pops into my head is let's assume that a hedge fund buys company A. And then that hedge fund decides that it ought to provide funding to bring a big, big private enforcement action against company B, which is the primary competitor of company A, a lawsuit that would be very injurious to company B and provide substantial advantage to company A. Clearly, there ought to be complete transparency about the hedge fund trying to use this private enforcement function to engage in what, frankly, would be blatantly anti-competitive activity. But the current rules would allow complete concealment of this scheme. So, John, I see a bit of dichotomy here. On the one hand, you have the funding industry pulling out all the stops to portray itself as a major player in U.S. litigation. Funding companies 
constantly issuing press releases, bragging about the new dollars they've raised from investors and the profits that they're reaping. They, companies are publishing surveys about how, how everybody is, likes litigation financing and wants to use it. Uh, so they're really making an effort to cast themselves as part of the mainstream in litigation. But the same, at the same time, the industry is also pulling out all the stops to operate in secret, as you've described. It's resisting any effort to require disclosure of litigation funding agreements in cases. And we've seen the industry oppose our efforts with the Federal Rules Advisory Committee. Um, if they want to be respected and an integral part of our litigation system, why would the industry so strongly resist transparency and disclosure? I suspect there may be a couple of reasons why funders don't want anyone to, to see everything that they're doing. The industry likes to say that they are only passive investors in litigation, that they don't exercise control over the cases in which they invest. I've always found that assertion rather incredible. How could anyone invest all that money in something with no strings attached? But I can't sit here and tell you that in every case, the funding agreements allow the funder to exercise control or influence how the litigation is conducted. And that's because all of these agreements are secret. We don't see them. But in the few instances in which funding agreements have become public, they've typically included provisions that allowed the funder considerable control. For example, there was recently media coverage of some litigation in New York in which the funder required that one of the of, of its own attorneys be included as part of the litigating team to protect the interests of the funder in making strategy decisions. If that's not control, I, I don't know what is. Why is that control issue so important, John? Well, if the funder is influencing management of the litigation, that raises a lot of ethical issues. If a plaintiff's counsel gives up control of the litigation to a funder, that attorney may be violating his or her obligation to first and foremost zealously represent the, the plaintiff, the primary client in the action. So I want to circle back to what I said up front and the question about, is this even legal? Uh, are there any other ethical or regulatory reasons why the funders may want to conceal their investments in a particular case? A absolutely. Uh, in some states, litigation funding is flatly illegal under what are known as champerty and maintenance laws. These are prohibitions on the funding of litigation by third parties. Now, the funders try to pretend that's not true, that those laws aren't out there, but it really is an irrefutable fact. Over the past three years, litigation funding agreements in specific cases have been declared illegal and unenforceable under the laws of Minnesota, New York, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Kentucky. Those are specific lawsuits where that issue was presented. Indeed, just last April, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit affirmed that the funding agreements at issue in, in one case violated the Kentucky Champerty Statute and, as the, as the Sixth Circuit put it, are inconsistent with Kentucky's public policy. Uh, the court noted, and I'm quoting now from that case, Kentucky has prohibited Champerty because such conduct encourages and multiplies litigation. 
Keeping funding agreements secret also helps funders skirt another ethics issue. As I mentioned earlier, in some funding agreements, plaintiffs' counsel promise to give the funders a percentage of the fees they may earn, that the attorneys may earn from a case. And, uh, you know, that's the deal. The funders make an investment to get a chunk of the attorneys' fees. The funders would prefer to keep those arrangements concealed, I suspect, because they at least arguably violate the ethics rules that prohibit attorneys from sharing their fees with non-lawyers. We as lawyers know that as Model Rule 5.4a, but it's a very important rule. Of course, that that rule gets back to the control issue we discussed further. As one commentator has put it, fee splitting, which is what we're talking about in that rule, is viewed as running the risk of granting non-lawyers control over the practice of law or potentially enabling laypersons to practice law without authorization. Um, so that's, that's, that's another reason why I think there's uh, a, a feeling among funders that they'd prefer not to have uh, their agreements disclosed. What's the argument against requiring disclosure? Paige, the main argument I've heard is that if funding arrangements are revealed, It's going to give defendants unfair insights into the resources that a plaintiff has available to litigate a case. Well, do you think the funders are right about that? No, not at all. Indeed, requiring disclosure would actually level the playing field on this point. You know, back in 1970, the federal court rulemakers decided to amend the federal rules of civil procedure to require that defendants turn over any applicable insurance agreements at the outset of litigation. Now, that disclosure gives plaintiffs a lot of information about the resources the defendant has available to defend a lawsuit, what defense costs the insurer will pay, what counsel may be available to defend the case, how much money may be available to settle, all those sorts of things. And, of course, plaintiffs often have access to lots of public information about a defendant's resources, or they may seek that information through discovery. So requiring disclosure of litigation funding agreements would simply balance what plaintiffs are are already routinely getting from defendants. Where do you see this disclosure debate going? I think the debate has educated a lot of judges about what litigation funding is and the fact that it's being used in lots of cases. That learning is prompting at least some judges to ask questions about whether funding is being used in a particular case and to try to get some sense of the terms uh, that are involved in that funding. And that development makes me hopeful that over time, the federal judicial rulemaking process that you talked about earlier, as well as legislators, will produce a uniform requirement that agreements be disclosed in all civil cases. Well, thank you very much, John. This has been really informative. We've learned a lot about third-party litigation funding and how it could turn our courtrooms into casinos if we don't have disclosure, and it could make it more about profit, not justice. Uh, Thank you, everybody out there, for tuning in, and keep an eye out for more on third-party litigation financing at instituteforlegalreform.com. Oh,